just want to say thanks thanks for coming. Cold weather. You made it here. I know some of you uh, drive mopeds, motorcycles, bikes, all that other kind of stuff, and you made it still, so thank you so much. I have one question about this weather, though. What in the world's going on? Like, uh, the last week, my wife and I, we were here on Monday. We left to go to Ohio. It was 68 when we left here, Raleigh, North Carolina. It was 25 when we got to Ohio, which was expected because that's the Midwest, right? Like, it's cold up there. Totally normal. We came back here the next day, and it was 25 here. Now, a couple people have said that I brought the weather back. I am not going to take that blame. What's happened here has not been my fault. If you're mad at me, be mad about other stuff. Please don't be mad about that. I don't know what to do with this kind of weather. And our group, we were talking about this a little bit, our e-group. Or email, we email prayer requests and different things throughout the week, and uh, sometimes I interact, sometimes I don't interact, and they said something about getting ready for the, the snow that was coming, and I thought as a former northerner, you know, a recovering Yankee, I thought that I could speak into this, and so I said, you know, there's two things that you can do to respond to snow when you're in the south, and one was kind of panic mode. One is you rush to Walmart, buy all the water you can get, all the bread, you know, buy powdered milk. It's the only time in your life you should be buying powdered milk because you're in panic mode. Put chains on your tires, whatever you need to do at that moment. Or you could leave work early, uh, rent a movie, relax at your house, and by about 9 or 10 o'clock the next day, it'll all be melted. So it's no big deal, right? And uh, some of our group, they really like the panic option better. And so they were going with that. But the question was, what do we do? We don't even know what to do with this. And I saw on Facebook different people talking about Southerners. We don't even know what to do with the snow and the ice. And I, I got this picture uh, from Facebook. So you got the bread and the milk and the flip-flops, right, for the snow there. <clears throat> we don't know what to do when we see cold weather. We, we, we're kind of in that what in the world is happening type mode. And there are a lot of things in life that are that way. Now, the weather can be one, especially snow in the south. Uh, another one can be uh, stuff that we see on the news. We get confused about different things that are happening. How does someone think that way? Why do they do Sometimes your kids will do something. You think, what in the world's going on? But do you ever ask yourself that question when God's doing something? You look at your circumstances, maybe, relationships at work, in your marriage, at school, with your finances, various different things. Do you ever look and go, God, what are you doing? What's happening here right now? And what are you trying to do? Where are you trying to take me? What are you trying to do in me? Are you, are you in control? And if you are, then why this? And sometimes we have those kinds of questions. And we wonder, what in the world's happening? That's exactly where the people were at in the passage of Scripture we left off in last week in the book of Acts. If you were with us last week, you may remember it's a dramatic passage of Scripture, perhaps the most dramatic passage of Scripture in the New Testament, at least one of the most dramatic passages of Scripture in the whole New Testament. In Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes, and a bunch of uneducated people that are known for being uneducated start speaking in languages, that they hadn't been trained to speak in. And it's every known language in the, in the world at that time. From everywhere around the world, every little slice of humanity, they're able to speak in these languages. They heard the sound of rushing wind, but there was no wind, so there's a weather element here. They hear these voices speaking in languages. They weren't trained to speak, so there's some confusion that's taking place. And what happens is it says the people were perplexed. They were amazed. Some started to mock. But then what happens is that Peter... The Apostle Peter stands up and he preaches the first Christian sermon in the church. The sermon that gets the whole thing started and what he does is he's explaining what God is doing. And that's what we're going to talk about today. If you have your Bible, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2 again and we'll start in verse 14 just where we left off last week. We're in verses 1 through 13 this week in verse 14. The Apostle Peter stands up and he continues what started in Acts chapter 1. We've been doing this series we've been calling Movement and we were talking about this movement of God and we talk about what a movement of God is. It's when a group of people, that's us, gather together around a common belief, and that's the gospel that's changed my life, that's changed many of your lives. And then we respond in radical obedience 
because of what he's done, because of that common belief, we should then live lives of radical obedience. And we're living in this time we've talked about in this series called the church age, between the times of Jesus' first coming and his second coming. This time of the church age is a time where God's working through his plan A, the church, and there is no plan B. It's the one organization has the promise the gates of hell will not prevail against. It's the bride of Christ, and do you know what it is? It's you, and it's me. And we all have a role in this church. And the role is that theme verse, that key verse for the whole series, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that you are to be his witnesses. Those of you who've experienced life change in Jesus Christ, you're the proclaimers, you're the testifiers, you're the ones that talk about what you've seen, what you've heard, what you've experienced. But here's the great news. He doesn't just give you a mission and then leave. He sends his spirit. He gives you the ability, the power to be able to do that. And that's what he did in Acts chapter 2. And last week, Jason talked to us about how it was the, the baptism and the filling, but the people were confused about what's exactly happening here. What does this mean in human history? What does this mean for us now? How are we supposed to respond? And so Peter gets up, and he preaches the inaugural sermon for Christianity. Look at it with me. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 14. We'll read verses 14 through 21, the first section of this sermon. It says, Then Peter stood with the eleven, so the other apostles stood with him. And Peter stood with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews... And all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what is spoken by the prophet Joel. And he's talking about Joel chapter 2, verses uh, 28 through 32. For those of you who like to take notes, he says this. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women. I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. What a great passage. Confusing in some spots, and we'll talk about that. But everybody who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And he summarizes that first section of this sermon. His sermon really breaks down into three different sections. We just read the first section, verses 14 through 21, where he explains what's happening. And verses 21 through 36, then we see how we can experience what is happening. And what happens, and we'll get to this next week, verses 37 through 41, he talks about how people respond to what's happening. And when they respond, 3,000 of them come to Christ, and the church begins at that point. But this is the sermon that starts it all. And he starts off with an explanation, verses 14 through 21. He explains what God is doing. And there are some things in life that just need an explanation, right? Like the weather, we talk about that. Sometimes you see confusing things. People do stuff, and you think, what were they thinking? The news kind of feeds on the idea that we want an explanation for things. You saw last week, the big thing that was being explained was Lance Armstrong and his cheating. You know, he cheated to win seven Tour de France's and used steroids. And he could have just released that with a press statement. But instead, it was two days worth of interviews with Oprah Winfrey. And I got pulled in, I'll be honest with you. And so I got pulled in. I, I watched the first one, and they started to talk about his drug use and what happened. And it was like, listening to what he did, it was like mafia stuff. Like putting you know, cellophane over top of toilets so no one could listen to them in a hotel room. I was like, that's like a Jason Bourne movie. Like, all of a sudden, I'm intrigued. So I wanted the explanation. I wanted to know. Tell me, tell me more about it. How, how did you cheat? How did all this happen? What were you thinking? And then there's other people, maybe you caught up in other stories, kind of the stories that are in the news right now. The Notre Dame football player who has a girlfriend who never existed, apparently, but maybe you're into that one. 
I don't know. I don't even know what to say about that one. There's, there's a, you know, maybe you watched this week the inauguration of the president, and so you want explanations. Why did Michelle pick the dress she picked and the designer she picked? And so they explain all that. They spend hours talking. It's the most important part, but I guess that's what happened. And here we have the inaugural sermon that Peter preaches. We don't get anything about what his wife's wearing in the text, by the way. I'm sorry about that. But what he's doing is he's explaining to us what God is doing. You ever wish you had an explanation for what God is doing in your life? You think about maybe what he's doing. I don't know your circumstances. You can think about them, obviously. Maybe what's happening in different relationships, what's happening in a ministry you're involved in, what's happening in a place where you work, what's happening in different relationships. You ever, you ever think, God, what are you doing here? Or, or maybe you know what you think he should be doing, and you want to know, is that, is that? Or why aren't you doing it on my time frame? Why, how come this has still not happened, and how come I haven't gotten to this place or this relationship or whatever the thing is? Wouldn't it be a blessing to have someone stand up and explain all that to you? And that's what Peter does for these people. They're confused by what's happened. And try and imagine what it was like to be these people. There's thousands of them, tens of thousands for sure, maybe hundreds of thousands, perhaps as many as a million people have come to Jerusalem for this festival. It's the day of Pentecost. It's one of three festivals that people would travel to Jerusalem for. And so there's thousands of people that have come from all over the place. You see the Medes, the Persians, there's all the different languages that are listed in verses 1 through 13. And they're coming, and they've got a plan to bring their sacrifices, to sing their songs, to read their scripture, to go through worship and do the worship that they traditionally do, to do it the way they normally do it. But then God does something different. And the Spirit comes on these people, and they're drawn in, and they're hooked, and people are trying to explain what's happening. You know what's happening here? God's doing a new work. It's real interesting. If you look at it theologically, I don't know if you've ever seen the passage of scripture in Genesis chapter 11. It's called the Tower of Babel. And what happened there was there were a bunch of people that gathered together because there was a time period in human history where everybody spoke the same language. And they came together to build a city, to build a monument to themselves so they could show how great they are. And they were going to build a tower to heaven and God saw it and saw that they were trying to glorify themselves. And he comes down and he says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to confuse their language. We're going to put them all over the world and give them all different languages. And there was a curse on them for trying to build something to their own greatness. And what we have here in in Acts chapter 2 is a reversal of that. Verses 1 through 13, what we looked at last week is actually the reverse of the Tower of Babel, where he brings people together from all over the world again, only they speak all kinds of different languages. Instead of bringing confusion, he brings clarity. Because they start to declare. They don't declare the gospel. They declare the wonders of God, probably the miracles of Jesus, perhaps the parting of the Red Sea, all the wonderful things that God has done. Now they're talking about how great God is. And Peter gets up to try and explain to them, what does this mean to you, though? What does this mean to each individual that's there, of those thousands of people in the audience? And he preaches his first sermon. Now, some commentators say this is the best sermon that Peter ever preached. And I think to myself, wouldn't that be rough? If you're like, trying to imagine if you're a preacher, and the best sermon you ever preach is your first sermon. It's all downhill after this, right? And I think about my first sermon that I ever preached. It was, t- it was bad, okay? Just as, as clear as I can be. I had only been a Christian for a few months, my youth pastor asked me to preach. He asked me to preach at the Sunday night service, the youth service. It was like, you know, kind of like JV service anyways. And so he put me in there. And, and also I spent two weeks preparing. Like every free moment I had, I was studying the Bible, trying to come up with everything I could think of. Everything I could say about God, I had written down on 14 pages of handwritten notes. It took me 15 minutes to preach the whole thing. You think I can fly now. You should have heard me back then. And it was bad, too. It wasn't even, like, that good of stuff. Like, I'm just, just, just talking. And I wore a green suit. My wife still makes fun of me that I wore a green suit. I looked like a nerd. I sounded terrible. And, like, what in, the, what in the world was going on there? If that would have been the best sermon that I ever preached, I'd be in trouble. And Peter, it's his first sermon. People say it's the best sermon he ever preached. 
One of the reasons is because 3,000 people came to Christ. That's pretty amazing. Another reason is because it was the catalyst to get started what we now, why we now meet together as a church. But another thing, think about how unique it is that he stands up and says, I'm going to explain to you exactly what God's doing in your life. And that's what he does. But he doesn't just start making stuff up. Notice he goes to the scripture. He starts by kind of getting rid of the guys that are mocking. You know, they said, you know, they're drunk. And so that happened at the end of last week's message, verses 12 and 13. He says, no, they're not drunk. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. To us, that sounds like a pretty adequate explanation. Like most people aren't drunk at 9 in the morning. Totally get that. Um, For them, they'd be fasting at this time. This was a time of a festival. 9 o'clock would be a prayer hour. And they wouldn't break their fast, even eat any food until 10. And so the idea that they were drunk, 120 people, men, women, and children, were drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning is ridiculous. So he disregards that, and then he goes to the scripture in verse 17. Look at what he says. Verse 16, he said, this is from the prophet Joel. In verse 17, he quotes the prophet Joel, and he says, "In in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And he goes on, and he continues to go through this prophecy of Joel. But he starts off here by saying this statement. Let me tell you something. There's a new day coming. These are the last days, is what Peter's saying to them. And they couldn't foresee this. Remember, these are Old Testament believers. I know we're reading in the New Testament now, but up to this point, they didn't understand all this stuff. The Spirit's coming. All these things are happening. They're new now. Up to this point, they were like Old Testament believers, and they were waiting for the Messiah to come. And what he's going to tell them is the Messiah came. You missed him. And he came, and he's coming again. This is what he's telling them. Now, they couldn't have foreseen this. This is one of those things where you read the Old Testament, and it's so much easier for us to read it from our perspective than you try to imagine from theirs. It's hard to see two comings of Christ, the first coming and the second coming in the Old Testament, if you didn't already know that. Now, it's there because you can read passages of Scripture, and I'll tell you how to do it. Read passages like Isaiah chapter 53, and it'll talk about a suffering servant who has to come, and he has to die, and he has to suffer. But at the same time, you'll see passages like Isaiah chapter 9, which will talk about Jesus coming in his glory, the Prince of Peace, the Mighty God, the one that will come, and he'll rule, and he'll reign. And the question becomes in your mind, how do both happen? And the answer is, they both happen because there's two comings, the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And what he talks to him about here is that the first coming has come. Now you're in the last days. Because when the second coming happens, and it can happen at any moment, that should give us urgency. It can happen at any moment. Then it's all done. He's coming to judge. He'll judge every thought, every deed, every action, every word. He's coming to rule. He's coming to reign. Now, he came as a suffering servant. He came to die. And he came to redeem. But now you're living in the last days of redemptive history. The authors of the New Testament, they knew this. And you see it when you read through the New Testament. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, But in these last days, like that's pretty clear, right? But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. He sent his son, first coming, and has spoken to us through his son. Peter says later in the New Testament, in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20, he was chosen, speaking of Jesus, before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. And so now it's it's years later from when he first preaches this sermon, and he says, now we're living in this last time. I don't think that Peter knew that these last days would last for 2,000 years. But he knew that we were in them. And now that we're in them, God's doing something unique. And what's he doing unique? Look at the next part of verse 17. It's in these last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Because up until this point, when the spirit of God came upon someone, he came upon special people for special assignments, for special reasons. People like kings. People like prophets. People like priests. People like judges, when you read in the, in the Old Testament. And so you've got these people that the spirit comes upon them and you look at them, and aren't they some of the people 
I don't know if you do this, but do you ever read, and some of those people that you just wish, I had a relationship with God like they do? Have you ever read about somebody like Elijah? And you read about him in the Old Testament. He's so close with God, he prays and it rains. <laughs> God, I pray it'll get warm. You know, didn't you just wish you were close like that with God? That you were so intimate? And so the Spirit is on Elijah in a special way. Or Elisha, and you see Elisha as a prophet. You see David. There's a guy that you look at and think, well, he's messed up like me. Like he does dumb stuff and makes mistakes. But he's a man after God's own heart. And God's got his hand on that guy. And he really loves God. Do you ever look at people like that and think, man, I wish that I was close with God like they're close with God? And that's, he's talking to normal, ordinary people like you and me here. This is the thousands and thousands that were watching what had taken place that day. And what he's saying is what you just saw, 120 people speaking these different languages, was evidence that God's pouring out a spirit not just on prophets and not just on priests and not just on kings. But you know who was there that day? There were old men. There were young men. There were women. There were servants. There were slaves. The fact that he says slaves shows that the Spirit comes regardless of class, regardless of status. The Spirit comes upon everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's verse 21. And we talked about that throughout this series, but I'll emphasize it even again because I don't want you to miss it. In order to receive the Spirit, you don't have to say a special seance. In order to receive the Spirit, you don't have to reach some special level of holiness. In order to receive the Spirit, you have to ask Jesus Christ to be your Savior. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. If you have Christ, you have the Spirit. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. In, first, or in Ephesians chapter 1, and verse 13, it says here's exactly how you get the Spirit. And if you, you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were marked in him. Once you believed, that's what you've got to do. You're marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. And that's for men, women, young, old, smart, not as smart, rich, not as rich. Like all, all, all people that place their faith in Jesus Christ receive the Spirit. Do you know that's different than Old Testament saints? You've got special access to God that's different. That's why David says in Psalm 51 verse 11, Take not your spirit from me. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Because the Spirit could come upon him and it could be taken away. And we talked last week about the baptism and the filling. This week we're talking about the indwelling. The Spirit comes and dwells in you until the day of redemption, until you're back in heaven. You're not, you can't do anything to lose the Spirit. And what God is doing here and what he's showing them would be so revolutionary to them because now they have direct access to God. They don't need a priest. They don't need to come through someone else, just like you and just like me. We take that for granted sometimes. Why? Because you have God living inside of you. Let that sink in for a minute. God lives inside of you. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is at work within you. Do you want to know what God's doing in the lives of these people that Peter's showing them? He's developing an intimacy with you. And I don't know what's happening in your circumstances. Job, marriage, relationships, friends, church, all that stuff. But I know that God's working in a way that he wants more and more intimacy with you. And the reason why is so that he can do a work in you that other people would then see and you would be a testifier, a proclaimer, a witness of his. That's why he gives you the spirit so that you can do Acts chapter 1 verse 8, that you'd be his witness. And how does he do it? He continues to work in you. He continues to develop in you. He continues to grow you in intimacy. All the details, I don't understand all the details that are happening in your life. And if anyone says that they can speak into that, I would question that. But he wants to speak to you. He wants to direct you. He wants to guide you. And that's what he's showing these people here in this passage of scripture. And he tells them different ways that it happens here. And some of them are kind of scary. It's your sons and daughters will prophesy. They'll see visions. Young men will see visions. Uh, old men, they'll dream dreams. And you start seeing this stuff. And you think, well, God doesn't do that, right? Like, that's kind of, we don't want him to do that. 
Because it's kind of like out of our control and it's kind of scary stuff. And the reality is the scripture doesn't say that he doesn't do this stuff anymore. He can still speak through prophecy that's inspired utterances. It's probably what the people were speaking. They were speaking the truth of things that were true about God. Visions and what in the world is that? Dreams? I've got some weird dreams, okay? And this isn't like therapy session or anything. But uh, if those are God speaking to me, I'm confused by what's happening. Lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. All kinds of stuff happening. Does that mean that God can't do it that way? No. The scripture doesn't say that he doesn't speak that way. In fact, I was talking with uh, a guy that I was with last week, the president of the college I graduated from. Um, we were chatting about dreams, and God speaks through dreams throughout the scripture, right? And Joseph, um, and the book of Genesis, and, and you got the book of Daniel. Joseph speaks through, or God speaks through dreams there. And, and he was telling me a story of a modern-day situation where there were some missionaries that were going to show the Jesus film. They were in India, and they were on their way out to a remote village. They were driving up this mountain, uh, up to this uh, cliff little um, kind of area, this kind of, you know, one of those people like Grant and Jody were talking about they've gone to that have never heard about Jesus. I don't know if you've heard of the Jesus film, but it shows the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, and it's very evangelistic. A lot of people come to faith through it. So they're excited about this. They've got plans, and their Jeep breaks down on the way. And so as the Jeep breaks down, they're trying to figure out what in the world are we going to do. We're out in the middle of nowhere. And so one of the guys says he's going to climb to the edge of the cliff and look out and see if he can find some civilization, somebody that can help them. He goes to the edge of the cliff. There's a guy sitting at the edge of the cliff. And he says, I've been waiting for you. And the guy's like, we're in the middle of nowhere. I had no plans of stopping here. What do you mean you've been waiting for me? He says, our village started having dreams about a week ago that some people were going to come, white people like them, were going to come and give them a message from God. The missionary went back to the Jeep, told the other guy, he said, I think we're supposed to show the movie here. <laughs> they went and they showed the movie. The whole village trusted Christ as their Savior. Can God still do that? Yep. God still does that kind of thing. But... Let me point something out from Scripture that, yeah, you can grab some stories, and I've just covered thousands and thousands of years and picked Joseph and Daniel. There's a couple others. It's not the normal way that God communicates. And what you find to be true, modern day and then, is that when God does communicate through dreams and visions, it's oftentimes because there's a void of his word. People that don't even have a copy of the Scriptures, he speaks to us that way. So the question has to be for us, if God has to speak to us through a vision... What does that say to us paying attention to him speaking to us directly through his word? It's almost like a judgment on us if he has to speak to us that way. Because he desires to speak to you. That's why he's given us a copy of the scriptures. This word to be a lamp into our feet and direct and guide our paths. and That he'd be able to speak into every situation. That he's given us everything we need for life and for godliness. And he speaks through friends, community. He speaks through prayer. He speaks through various different things. But the primary way he speaks to us is so clear is through the scriptures. And he wants to speak to you. And he wants to develop intimacy with you. And he wants to use you to be his witness. And that's what he's saying. That's what Peter's telling these people. And he's going to speak. And he's going to speak to all kinds of different people. It's not just the priest. It's not just the elite. It's not just the really smart. It's young men. It's old men. It's young women. It's old women. It's slaves. It's everybody. And he gives them a warning, though, too, in verses 19 and 20. He says, I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs in the earth below and blood and fire and billows of smoke. And this is judgment language. What he's talking about is that God's judgment is coming. That's the second coming of Christ. Verse 20 says this, And the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. That's the day of the second coming. That's judgment. Every thought, every deed, every action will be under judgment from God. And Peter gives that in the explanation. And then he transitions. And he talks about not just an explanation of what God's doing, but how you can experience what God's doing. In the second part of the message, verse 21, he says, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
You can avoid that judgment. Notice here it says, will be saved. Not are saved. Not talking about in that present moment, but one day in the coming day of judgment, you'll be spared that. You'll be saved from that. I remember when I first became a Christian, hearing that term, saved. It's an old Baptist preacher I remember hearing one time preach, and you've got to be saved. Come down here and be saved. You need to be saved. And I'm thinking, I'm like, saved? What are you talking about? What do you get saved from? You're being saved from judgment. And we don't like to talk about that, but judgment's coming. And it's real. And it's real for everyone. But those who've called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to save them, to rescue them out of that judgment, that judgment's cast on the cross. It's already been paid at the cross of Christ. The, the thing that we're being saved from, that not just judgment, it's our sin, because it's our sin that separates us from God. It's our sin, it's those sinful thoughts that we're afraid of being judged. It's those deeds that we did that were contrary to his character that we don't want to be judged for, that we don't like to talk about those things. But isn't he loving and isn't he gracious? And yes, for all those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, they'll be spared from that. But it will come, and he's warning them. And he tells them, here's how you can experience what I'm talking about for you. It's not just it just happens. It's everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. But he, like a good preacher, doesn't just tell them that's what you have to do. He tells them about who it is that they're calling on. Verse 22, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. And so what happens here now is that Peter begins to preach about the wonders and the miracles and the signs, the life of Jesus Christ. And, and what we have here is probably not all that Peter said. He probably didn't just say, you know the wonders, you know the signs, you know the miracles. He probably talked about them. You know, we've got this message here, verses 14 through 41. We can read the whole thing in about three or four minutes. I know it was Peter's first message, but I think it probably took longer than three or four minutes to preach. What we probably have here is Luke's summary of what Peter said. And so when I read verse 22, and I think about Peter talking about the wonders and the miracles and the signs, he was there for those things. What do you think it was like for him to start telling the stories of what it was like when Jesus did the miracles, when he turned water to wine at the wedding? And everybody out there who was at the party, they didn't even realize what had happened. They just thought the best wine got brought out. And Peter was there to watch all that, hear the conversations behind the scenes. He was there when the guy got lowered through the ceiling and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven and you don't see anything happen. And the religious people, they get all uptight and upset. And so Jesus says, well, so that you know that I have authority to forgive sins, pick up your mat and walk. And the guy who's lame walks out of the place and everybody's amazed. And Peter was there for that. So he probably tells that story. He probably tells the story of what it was like when he walked on water or what it was like when they all thought they were going to die. And then they wake Jesus up and Jesus says, calm down, wind, calm down, waves. You know, calms down. He's got control over nature and control over the supernatural. He casts out demons. What do you think it was like for Peter the first time he saw Jesus raise somebody from the dead or heal somebody from a distance? He wasn't even there when it happened. Or, or you've got people that are blind and they can't see and can't walk and, and Jesus heals all these And he's telling these stories to these people and their personal stories because Peter was there. But there's something really interesting to me about verse 22 and you go back to it and I challenge you to underline it yourself. It's that phrase at the end that gets me. Peter wasn't the only one there. He says, as you yourselves know, they were there for these miracles. Which makes me ask myself the question, who in the world was there for this sermon that Peter's preaching? There's thousands of people in the crowd, right? And you start thinking about the people that experienced the miracles of Jesus. I bet you there were some people there that were there when Jesus fed the 5,000. And they came and they ate the food, but they didn't bow their knee to Jesus Christ. 
It's just like when we go to churches now, and, and there'll be people, they've seen Jesus work in their lives, they've seen him provide for them, but they haven't fully surrendered their lives to Jesus. Because who he's preaching to, he's, he's with the 120, but he's preaching to the thousands. He's preaching to people that saw Jesus do a work, some of them saw Jesus do a work in their lives, but they haven't surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ. Because he's going to tell them, you're the people that killed Jesus. I wonder if some of the lepers were there. Remember that story of the ten lepers? Jesus heals all of them, but they don't all come back. I wonder if Peter made this really personal when he says, as you yourselves know, and just walked up to people, put his hand on their shoulder. You know, leper, what it was like. Remember when he healed all ten of you and you didn't all come back? You know what it was like. And I wonder if he went through it. I wonder if there's anybody that was demon-possessed because he healed some demon-possessed people. We see in the scriptures that some people were healed from demon possession, but then... The spirit doesn't come and fill their lives. They don't place their faith in Christ. And the demon comes back and they're worse off than they were the first time. So I wonder if there's any people like that there that are in the crowd. And I wonder how many people in our crowds, in our churches in America, have seen God do a work. He's provided. He's healed. He's directed. But they haven't surrendered. That's the audience that Peter's preaching to here. And he tells them, God's done the work, as you yourselves know. Can you imagine if I walked around this room right now and put my hand on your shoulders? So, you know, what did God do in your life? What did God do in your life, Jim? What did God do in your life, Joseph? What did God do in your life? And I start walking to different people. And you think about what God's done in your life. Can you imagine God do that work in your life and then you not surrender your life to him? There's one guy in our church, Sean. I saw him just before this service. He's becoming a friend of mine. Appreciate him a lot. And he's learning some of his story. He's uh, training to be one of the leaders in our Celebrate Recovery Ministry that meets on uh, Thursday nights at 7 o'clock. And the first time I heard his story was at Discovering Southbridge. And he started to share just very open. We had a smaller group this one time. And, and I was like, wow, God's done an amazing work in this guy's life. Reconciled his marriage. Broken addictions in his life. Brought him out of a drug issue. Saved him. And I think about a guy like that. I asked him this week. I said, will you send me your story on paper? And we're going to have to have him on uh, one of our life change stories. But... When I read the paper, he had about seven pages. I just took the pages and I just laid my hand. He wasn't even there, but I just on my desk. I laid my hands on the pages and just felt like, God, I love this guy. Keep, keep him. Hold on to him. Use him. I prayed for him. Prayed for his wife. Can you imagine for a moment, this isn't in reality, but can you imagine for a moment if I walked up to Sean today and I said, Sean, why haven't you surrendered to Jesus? He's done all this amazing stuff in your life. That's what this audience was like. God's done all this stuff, and you still haven't surrendered. That's what he's saying to them. And he says this in the next verse, you're fighting him. This is the man that was handed over to you by God's set purposes and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. He came feeding you, healing you, casting out demons, providing for you, directing you, guiding you, doing all this stuff for you, and you killed him. Now, I don't know who all was in the audience. Maybe... Maybe the centurion was there that was guarding the cross. Maybe the guy who actually put nails in Jesus' hands was there. But the vast majority of the audience didn't. The vast majority of the audience is like us. We never took an actual nail and drove it through Jesus' hand. But it was our sins that nailed him to the cross. And he's saying to them, you killed him. God came for you. He's doing a work for you. He's doing wonders. He's doing miracles. He's doing signs. And you so rebelled against that that you actually nailed him to the cross. In other words, you're fighting against God and he's doing a work for you. And how many of us is that true? And we don't even realize it. Think about who these people are. They're religious people. They're there to worship. The ones that are coming and they hear this sermon, they're coming to bring their sacrifices, to read scripture, 
to, to do the stuff that religious people have done, that their family's always done, that they go through, not say go through the motions in a bad way, but go through all the religious motions of having an encounter with God, and then they go back home. And then Peter stands up and says, not today, no, 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 listen. You can't just go through the motions. God's doing something different, and you have to decide, are you going to fight what he's doing, or are you going to follow where he's leading? And that's really a decision for many of us. Are we going to fight what God's doing, or are we going to follow where he's leading us? Because sometimes what we do is the same thing these guys are doing. We get so focused on what we think God should be doing. He should be meeting us at the day of Pentecost, regular encounter. We read the scriptures, we go through them, we do all the rituals, and we do our God thing, and then we kind of go back. And that's what they were expecting. God doing something different this time. And what many of us do is we get so focused on something, like our career, our relationships, whatever they are, we fill in the blank. Well, we, our dreams, whatever that is. We, we want God to do this. We think he should. It's not even that this stuff's bad. And we're not even saying that God's against this stuff. But what if he's doing something different and we totally miss it? Because we're so focused on what we want him to be doing. And then there's other people that rebel in different ways. Some people, it's just sin. You're just stubborn. You're, just, you're rebelling against God. You shake your fist at God type of person. You've got people like that in Scripture. Pharaoh, with a hardened heart, would be a person. There's other people that you don't like to fight. You know, it's not even your personality to fight. Uh, you're more of a flight kind of person. You take off. Jonah would be a great example. Let me tell you something. Pharaoh or Jonah, it doesn't work out for either one of those guys. Okay? There's a little summary. There's a Bible survey for you. Pharaoh, Jonah, doesn't work out. Don't fight God. Because God always wins. God's too strong for that. And that's what Peter tells us in this passage. He says, listen, you, you killed God. But he didn't stay dead. Verse 24. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Death couldn't hold on to him. He's God. He's too powerful. And plus he's made some promises that make it very evident that he's not going to stay dead. Don't fight God. You lose. Jonah doesn't outrun God, by the way. It's, like, it's not like hiding from the police. You know, he's omniscient. He's going to find you. He knows where you're at. And some of us, we flee from God. We avoid it. We just don't want to deal with it. Uh, we go and do our own thing. Others of us, we might outright rebel. For some of us, we're just so focused on our thing. The question is, will we just surrender? Because he wins. And that's what he says here. He wins. He even used the most wicked act in all of human history, the greatest rebellion against him ever, as part of his plan, part of his plan for redemption, the cross. And here he talks about his power, his power to overcome the cross. And see, this Jewish audience would have a hard time with the idea that their Messiah had been crucified. They read the Old Testament, they see him coming in glory, they see him ruling, they see him reigning. So how could a Messiah ever be killed? And Peter tells them here in verse 23, that was God's plan, and he tells them in verse 24, and he doesn't stay dead. And then you look at what happens in the cross. Do you see how powerful Jesus is even in the cross? And think about what happens. Imagine, remember when they come to arrest him? And you read, I think it's John chapter 18 or somewhere in that range. They come to arrest Jesus. And they say, we're coming for Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am he. They all fall down. He doesn't fall down. They fall down. They're coming to arrest him. And they fall down on the ground when he says, I am he. And then they come out there. Remember Peter? He pulls out his sword, cuts the dude's ear off. And then Jesus is about to get arrested by this guy, you know, grabs the guy's ear. Whoosh, you know, I don't know if there's dirt or what, what, anyway, whatever happens, he puts the guy's ear back on. You're going to arrest me, but I'm healing you. <laughs> Who's in control here? And then, okay, now you can arrest me. And then he tells Peter, oh, by the way, I could call 12 legion of angels if I'd like to. I've got this. No one takes my life. I lay it down. He had power even in the cross. In fact, he goes to the cross, and what do you see him doing? He's granting salvation at the cross. Today you'll be with me in paradise, he says to the thief. 
He's in control. He's got power, even on the cross. But then after the cross, when he dies, the ultimate demonstration of his power is that he doesn't stay dead. And as we see here, the scripture says it's impossible for him to stay dead. And we've got here, as Luke summarizes this message by Peter, one verse on his life, one verse on his death, and between nine and 12 verses on his resurrection. It's pretty important. It says here uh, that the agony of death couldn't keep him because it was impossible for death to lay its hold on him. And then he quotes, for those in the Jewish audience that are wondering, how could a Messiah die? He quotes from the Psalms, their book. And he says, David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One, speaking of the Messiah, see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You fill me with joy in your presence. And now he's done quoting the psalm, and Peter starts to speak again here in verse 29. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. What he's saying to this Jewish audience is this. You want to see David's tomb? It's outside. David's not talking about himself. David was talking about Jesus Christ. That's what Peter goes on to say. Verse 30. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Jesus comes in the line of David. Verse 31, seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. There were hundreds of witnesses that saw Jesus raised from the dead at that time. Verse 33, exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. The very thing that you just saw happen today at Pentecost with all these people speaking these languages, that's God fulfilling his promise because God, Jesus, is at the right hand. He just sent the Spirit. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is what will happen between the times, between the first coming and the second coming. And then verse 36 summarizes the whole sermon. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made Jesus, whom you crucified, here's what you did and what you're responsible for, both Lord and Christ. God made him Lord and Christ. You killed him. But God made him Lord in Christ, which is an important point to point out, is that we don't make him Lord in Christ. He already is Lord in Christ. Regardless of what you do, what I do, what we say, what we think, whether we rebel, we can fight against it, we can run from it, but we don't change it. Jesus is Lord. That means he's king. That means he's sovereign. He's Lord of lords. He's king of kings. He is in control. We never take control. That's a myth. He is Christ. He is the Savior. You can look for other saviors. You can have functional saviors. You can use alcohol. You can do drugs. You can use people. You can come up with ideas, your job, your, all that stuff, but it doesn't save you. He is Lord. He is Christ. Now, we can rebel against it. We can fight it. Or we can follow. And that's really the choice in our court. And that was the choice for them. Are you going to fight or are you going to follow? We fight it in many different ways. We fight it for a lot of reasons. We fight it because we don't want to lose control, so we don't want God in control. That's part of my story. Some people fight it because they're afraid. They're afraid of if something else happens, afraid of what God might do, afraid of what he might ask, afraid of if they're wrong, afraid of all kinds of stuff. We fight it sometimes just because of outright rebellion. We love sin more than we love God. We fight it because we think we're pursuing God's plan, but really it's our dream, and we baptize it with a bunch of Bible verses, and we haven't really sought him to ask him, where are you leading? And if you're fighting God, you've got to surrender because you'll lose. And we'll talk more next week as we get into the response that these people had in verses 37 through 41 about repentance and about baptism and some of those things. But don't miss the issue before us today. 
If you're resisting, running, rebelling, anything, whatever phrase you like, fighting God, will you stop fighting what he's doing? Because he's developing intimacy in you so he, you can be a witness for him. That's what he's doing. He's not fighting what he's doing. And will you follow where he's leading you? And to follow where he's leading you means you totally surrender to him. It means you surrender your mind. You let him change your thinking if he needs to change your thinking. You surrender your heart. It's your passions, your will, your desires, all that stuff. It's his, not my will, your will be done. You, you surrender your strength. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'll think whatever you want me to think. I'm yours. That's what you're saying. That's what it is to follow. Let's pray.